Hey everybody, you are listening to In the Trenches, where it is my job to inform some aspect of either your personal or professional life based on my own experiences, as well as those of others, buying, operating, selling, and investing in small and medium-sized businesses. If you want access to the show notes from today's episode, please visit mineolasearchpartners.com forward slash podcast. Mineola is spelt M-I-N-E-O-L-A. Within the show notes are a few things that I hope will be useful for you, including a list of all the questions that I've asked today, as well as where to skip to in the audio to listen to any given question, links to each of the resources that we discussed, which most frequently include books to read, blogs to follow, videos to watch, and things of that nature. And finally, a written transcript of our entire discussion so that you can download it to highlight, copy, take notes, or otherwise use as you see fit. Lastly, if you find yourself either operating or hoping to operate a smaller, medium-sized business, I would welcome the opportunity to speak with you and to be helpful to you in any way that I can be. I am an active investor in search funds and the companies that they acquire through traditional search, self-funded search, as well as equity gap situations. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me if you think that I might be able to help. Okay, let's jump into today's show. Hey everybody, so today is all about the finance and accounting function and we cover quite a lot of ground in a relatively short period of time, all in an effort to provide you with some perspective and advice that I hope is both relevant and timely for you in relation to running your own business. My guest today is Nicholas Andrews, who is the founder of the Aspen Consulting Group and that's a company that performs finance, accounting and operations consulting for a wide range of small and medium-sized businesses. Aspen services include technical accounting, corporate finance, valuations, operations planning, and M&A due diligence, among several others. Prior to founding his own company, Nick was part of a three-member founding team that grew an asset management firm from zero to $1.5 billion in assets under management across the real estate and energy sectors, and they were able to achieve that growth in less than four years. He has 20 years of experience in finance and accounting, including establishing these groups from non-existent states, as well as managing annual budgets of $200 million or more for several publicly traded companies. So our conversation today begins with several questions about how to manage cash and other sources of liquidity amid all of the macroeconomic uncertainty and volatility that we're currently witnessing as I speak in July of 2022. We then discuss the topic of employee financial literacy, including the question of how transparent CEOs should be with company financials, including in difficult times, and then move to questions of capital allocation and how CEOs should think about spending the cash that they generate. And lastly, we conclude with several considerations related to hiring, specifically focusing on the question of how CEOs should think about hiring a finance and accounting leader for the first time, which I suspect many listeners are attempting to do right now. So we cover a lot of ground, but I hope you find this discussion to be genuinely useful. Without any further delay, please enjoy my conversation today with Nicholas Andrews. Nick Andrews, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Steve. 
So we've got a lot to talk about to a lot to talk about today, I should say. And the reason why I wanted to produce this particular show is in light of what is happening from a macroeconomic standpoint. Um, CEOs and CFOs have a lot of considerations that I'm sure are weighing heavily on them. Uh, and where I wanted to start, Nick, in light of what's happening from a macroeconomic standpoint um, is everything to do with cash and liquidity, liquidity management. So I want to start out with what might be a very basic question. And that question is, how should CEOs think about how much cash to keep on their balance sheet at any given time? And I remember you know, when I was a CEO, there was a bit of push and pull. On, on one hand, a lot of cash always provided me with a lot of um, buffer or cushion against unexpected negative events. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe at the opposite end of the spectrum, too much cash on hand can be seen as overly conservative, perhaps not an efficient use of capital. So where do you stand on this? How should CEOs think about this question? Yeah, I think I think it's going to you know vary based on the type of business that you're running. But you know, my starting point for any type of analysis uh, around how much cash to keep on the balance sheet would, I'd look back at you know kind of my historical performance. You know, look back over a year, or whatever whatever time period you know you want to pick, and look at look at the nature of my business because you know some months are going to be you know I'm going to have cash rich months, and some months are going to be cash lean months. So if I start with a framework of, you know, knowing that I've got, you know, maybe six months out of the year that are cash rich months and six months out of the year that are my cash lean months, you know, I might use that as a starting point to say, you know, I probably need to build up a buffer of, you know, six months of reserves, but I wouldn't just do that alone. I would look at my historical nature of the business. And then I would also look at how my business is performing. And so for me, you know, one of the things that I'm always focused on um, and some of the metrics that I'm always kind of running in the background are uh, around working capital management. So I look at the cash conversion cycle pretty quickly or uh, pretty frequently to see, you know, how quickly are we collecting money? So if I go back to what I said earlier, if we have six, you know, rich months and six lean months and I say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I need six months of reserves, but if I run the cash conversion formula and I say, oh, well, my, uh, my, my conversion has actually gone down. So I actually need to have, you know, maybe seven months of reserve um, or eight months of reserve. So I would use, I would use historical nature. And then I would look at how the business is performing to, to determine maybe how much cash I would need to, to uh, keep on the balance sheet. Once I have those two foundational components, I would look then at kind of what my burn rate is, how, how this year is changing from maybe last year, look at my burn rate, and then look at how my cost structure is either, is either changing or evolving over prior years and use that information to come up with what a comfortable position would be for me to hold cash on the balance sheet. And you mentioned the concept of months of reserves. Um, within that framework, what are we measuring? So asked another way, are we talking about a certain number of months worth of fixed costs to have in the in the bank in the form of cash or a certain number of months worth of payroll? Uh, maybe some CEOs would say a certain percentage of sales. Like, are there any metrics or rules of thumb that you would look at elsewhere in the financial statements that inform or guide the dollar value of cash that you want sitting on your balance sheet at any given time? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because I actually just had a conversation with a CEO about this. Uh, they're in a service-based business and 
you know, one of the things we were just talking through was, you know, they've got the they they they've got the cost to you know run their business, so they they get hired to do a job. They have the direct cost for them to produce that job, and then that profit is what has to cover the rest of their you know overhead expenses. And they didn't know what that burn rate was, so I, I calculated that burn rate for them, and I just said, hey, this is what you got to have in per month, and gave them that number. And the CEO said to me, I've never thought about it in that way. And so from that standpoint, for them, it was it was direct overhead costs of what their burn rate was. And then they could look at that and say, okay, well, I'm comfortable now having three months of my overhead costs. I think you can look at, you can use metrics, but I think you have to look at metrics holistically. So one of the things you mentioned was, you know, percent of sales. You could look at percent of sales and having that in reserve, but I would also look at percent of sales in terms of my collections too. So if I'm looking at sales, plus my collection rate. So if I have a certain number of sales and it's taking me you know, 30 or 45 days to collect those sales, I would wanna look at those two items in tandem to order, in order to calculate what my reserve would be. Because if I just said, you know, it's, it's you know, three months of sales that I wanna keep, but it's taking me 90 days to collect those sales, I need to make sure that I have the buffer to you know, manage those sales knowing that it's not gonna be coming in for 90 days. So I usually look at metrics in tandem. So I, I look at, I usually look at things that how they affect the income statement as well as the balance sheet when I'm looking at kind of my rule of thumb. Now, you know, excess cash sitting on the balance sheet, um, you know, I guess in theory and, and, and in practice uh, loses value to inflation uh, in theory every day. Um, so does the current inflationary environment, as of this recording, I think it's uh, in the neighborhood of nine or ten percent, which is as high as I've I've ever seen it. Yeah. Um, does the current inflationary environment color your view of this in any way? So, said another way, you know, going into macroeconomic uncertainty, perhaps going into a recession that would suggest that CEOs would probably be wise to keep a lot of cash on their balance sheet. However, a high inflationary environment would suggest pretty much the opposite uh, because that cash is just losing value daily to inflation. So it seems like CEOs and CFOs are kind of getting conflicting messages from a macroeconomic standpoint. How do you kind of reconcile those in your head? And uh, does the current inflationary environment impact your answer in any way? Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, you hit on it. Yeah, I think CPI data, you know, on Wednesday was like 9.1%. If you think back of the, the forecasts, I mean, I think they forecasted, you know, flat CPI, uh, uh, you know, and I think the month over month change in headline inflation was, you know, one point something percent. So, yeah, I mean, that weighs on, that weighs on, you know, my mind and it's inflation that we haven't seen in, you know, 40 years. So I think it's a, it's a delicate balancing act when thinking about how much cash to keep on the balance sheet. And, you know, if, if you've got excess cash on the balance sheet and, you know, and you're looking for ways to maybe protect yourself from an inflationary environment, you know, what I would try and do is I would try and look at how the business is running and maybe really kind of challenge the status quo to say, are there ways that I could maybe protect myself from this cash? Because trying to get a return on that cash with, with interest rates where they're at is difficult. So it's tough to say, well, I've got excess cash, I can park it in you know, short duration uh, vehicles to earn, you know, some nominal and, you know, rate of return, but on a, on a real basis, you're, you're still, you know, negative. So, you know, if I was like a manufacturing company, 
you know, I'd be looking at my business saying, you know, are there any ways where I could maybe protect myself from further inflationary pressures? Could I, could I lock in uh, purchase contracts or could I lock in prices for, for items that I'm going to be buying in the future? If I look out over the business and I know I'm going to be having cash outflows, is there any way I can protect myself now from, you know, further increases in inflation is probably how I would be approaching it. Um, just given the fact that, you know, trying to find a return or trying to find a way to offset the, the destruction of inflation is going to be very difficult right now. I'd also be looking at how this would probably impact my uh, customer base because, if, you know, we're, I mean, I my view is that we are headed for a recession now. I don't know when that's going to hit, but if I, I'd probably look at my customer base and try and assess just how strong my customers are and see how, um, you know, that in, that recession might affect them. So that way I can maybe model out and forecast how it might affect my business is how I would look at it. Now, there are more components to liquidity than just the dollar value of cash sitting in one's bank account. Um, and CEOs have a lot of levers at their disposal to potentially increase liquidity um, to the extent that that's something that, that they want to do. Um, you know, in our last episode, I spoke with Jim Sharp about raising prices. Uh, of course, you can raise volumes, you can decrease your costs, you can stretch your payables, you can accelerate your receivables. I mean, you know, these, these are kind of pretty common levers, uh, but, but they're not all necessarily created equally. So in your experience, managing liquidity crunches, or at least um, in anticipation of liquidity crunches, what are some of the levers that you've pulled that you found to be particularly impactful that CEOs might want to consider doing right now? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's really kind of interesting if, you know, if you have the ability to raise price and not face demand destruction, I think that that's a, I think that that's a, you know, a good way to go. It, it can be kind of a delicate balance as if you raise price and you face demand destruction, reversing that course, you know, you could permanently lose business. Um, the volumes, you know, when I think about raising volumes, you know, my focus there would be really focused on, you know, break-even analysis. Um, I was actually just, you know, working with one of my clients on this, looking at break-even um, for them across some of their product lines. And in order for them to achieve, you know, break-even, they would have had to scale up their production to add a whole nother line of manufacturing. And so when you add a whole nother line of manufacturing, that's obviously going to change because you're adding additional fixed costs. So, you know, raising volumes is, is, you know, always it's a it's a way you can you know increase cash coming in, but I think understanding how that's going to change your break-even point and your overall cost structure is very important. Mm. Um, for me, you know, my kind of first place is I always look inwardly um, within the business. So you know, one of the like one of the analyses that you know I would say to do is if you looked at say increasing price or just increasing volumes. I would compare that to how quickly we're collecting on our sales. You know, I mentioned earlier, if you have a long collection time, you know, increasing price, you know, would, you would probably face some demand destruction, but you would have, you know, eventually more sales coming in. But if you're collecting your sales on say 90 days, you know, what happens if you collect your sales on 85 days and you have to look at the change and like what would, what would potentially generate more cash for the business? Sometimes just changing your collection, you know, your collection on the business or managing your working capital more efficiently 
will actually be create more business, uh, more cash for the business than say changing prices or changing volume. So I kind of start there as my baseline of looking at you know the efficiency of you know AR, AP, and inventory management, and then saying, well, what happens if we just change some of those? So we keep our prices, we keep all our customers the same, but what happens if we just speed up collection by you know one day, two days, three days? What does that do for us in terms of cash in the business? Sometimes that can be more impactful without putting a shock through your customers of, hey, here's a price increase or trying to go create more demand within the market. You know, if, the, if demand's saturated in the market for your product, raising volumes might not necessarily be an option. What about like the 210 net 20 structure, which would say that, hey, we'll give you a 2% discount if you pay within 10 days, otherwise pay us within 30 days at full price. You know, that has always kind of struck me as for lack of a better way to put it, a a bit of a desperate move. Um, And what I mean by that is it strikes me that a CEO would have to be in a pretty desperate liquidity situation to do something like that. Um, Am I I incorrect in that assumption? I mean, how have you used early payment discounts, if at all, um, while historically managing a liquidity crunch? So I've never had to use them to manage a liquidity crunch. I've always been on the other side. So I would answer it from kind of the other side. Any scenario where, you know, we're offered a, you know, a 210, like you just mentioned, you take advantage of it. Because when you annualize that return, it is significant, on the, the savings that you're, that you're getting. I mean, sometimes, you know, when people hear it, they go, oh, well, it's not that much. But you have to realize that that's over a 10-day period. And you have to put that into terms of a year. And that's a significant, you know, discount. So, you know... If I was, if I'm on the other side of it, you know, I'm real hesitant to be offering discounts on, you know, payment terms. You know, if there's ways to speed up collection, I think there's other levers that you can pull. Maybe it's, maybe it's volume service, um, you know, other ways that you could maybe help, you know, drive a collection rate um, without offering a discount. To me, I, I would, you know, unless it's, unless it's maybe industry standard or, or something very, very specific, you know, I would, I would shy away from um, offering discounts unless it's, you know, absolutely necessary. So, you know, kind of like you mentioned at the beginning of the question, it's something that I think would be a last resort of what I would advise someone to do. And you talked a lot about the volume lever and in speaking to CEOs in the past, um, when the question of increasing volumes comes up, the response tends to be, something to the effect of, oh, you know, you want me to raise volumes? You know, what a profound insight, like what CEO is not trying to raise volumes. But as I think about um, pulling the volume lever, tell me if I'm thinking about this correct. I mean, there's a couple of things that I would consider as a CEO to figure out whether or not this is a lever I should be pulling. So first is my collections, right? When Mm -hmm. I provide my product or service, do I collect all up front or do I collect, let's say, after the service is... Um, provided or after the product is provided. Mm -hmm. Two would be the margin, the gross margin. Do I have a high gross margin that I can eat into or do I have a low gross margin that I I really can't eat into? Otherwise the sale would be unprofitable. And last is like the payback period of the customer acquisition cost. So for, if it costs me a hundred dollars to acquire a customer, but I can get that hundred dollars back in two or three months, that's a totally different story than if it takes me a year to get that. So, um, I guess, you know, part one of the question, am I thinking about that right? And two, are there any other um, variables that CEOs should consider specific to increasing that volume lever? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think the items you mentioned are, those are all the, those would all be the same items that I would look at as well. I mean, if, if you could just raise demand, you know, is, that to me implies that there's, you know, you're taking market share at that point. So, you know, is your, is the demand for your product such that it could go from, you know, 100 units to 120 units? And are you taking those extra additional 20 units that you're putting into the market? Are you taking those from a competitor or are those truly, you know, unfilled, you know, demand in the market? You know, the, I think the only item I would maybe add to the analysis around increasing demand or increasing volumes would be the, the purchasing decision. So, you know, how much inventory now you're going to be needing to buy and what that's going to do to your um, purchasing. So if I have, if I have a lead time, you know, going back to my example, if I was doing hundred units, if I have a certain lead time and a certain price structure that I've worked out with my supplier, how does that lead time and price structure change if I need to now be buying more units? And then what is that going to be doing to going back to what I said earlier about my cash conversion cycle? So my, my inventory on hand. So looking at how quickly I can, you know, sell those additional units into the market and what that does to my overall collection. I think that's the additional analysis I would do around that and figure out if I have the working capital to support that. Am I going to need, do I have to take on maybe bank debt to buy the additional um, units of material or, or how can I fund that internally? Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about the other uh, the opposite side of the coin. Um, we've been talking about um, levers to pull to increase liquidity, mm-hmm. um, but there are variables that can decrease liquidity. Some are more obvious than others. And I remember speaking to a former investor of mine who called these cash vampires, um, which is to say these are less obvious drains or uses of cash that maybe aren't always on the radar of CEOs. When I kind of say cash vampire or a less obvious use or drain of cash, does anything come to mind in your experience? Yeah, I think, yeah, there's there's a few. Um, I would say some of the, the cash vampires, like one of them is, uh, can be PTO, can be a cash vampire. Um, I, was, I was speaking with someone the other day and they were, their, they were a manufacturing company and they mentioned, you know, the holiday just happened. And then they had some of their production, like I think the majority of their production staff was out on for the whole, just took the whole week off as well. So if you think about that, you know, you're still incurring cash outflows because you're having to incur that the wage cost for that. They're not there. Productivity would, you know, maybe decrease or maybe you've got the ability to, to sustain that. But if you don't have the people there producing the product, you know, then you're going to have a, a drop there. So you know, PTO is is one of them, and if you have a, a significant size company, I mean that that liability can be you know hundreds of thousands to you know potentially up to like you know millions of dollars you know per year. You know the other the other cash vampires that kind of fall off the radar you know are corporate credit cards um, or lax expense policies. That can be a big one because if you if you maybe you have you know, spending thresholds, like you have to get spending approval above a certain threshold. But if I've got a corporate credit card and I'm a part of a, you know, a team that's out meeting with clients and I'm kind of doing lunches here and there and stuff that's under the radar, you know, all of a sudden I can have cash go out the door that can be more than anticipated. And then you're not knowing about it until, you know, maybe either when an expense report is filed or maybe to when you see the credit card statement. So those are things that can, you know, kind of catch you. Um, other cash vampires that I've seen have just been, it's been um, like a decentralization in, in, in spending. So, you know, someone's responsible for maybe ordering, you know, supplies for the business, but, 
they just say like, oh, well, this so-and-so needed a chair, so I bought a chair, or so-and-so needed a computer, so I bought a computer. So when you have these kind of decentralized um, uh, policies or maybe decision-making, that can, that can be, that can be a, a, a cash vampire. Um, and then the other, the other one that I kind of see sometimes is, you know, in this, this is, I'll need to expand on this, but sometimes like if you're managing your ratios, your ratios can kind of act as cash vampires. And one that can kind of act as a cash vampire is your current ratio. Mm-hmm. Cause it can be a little misleading when you think about, you know, your current ratio. Um, you know, if you, if, if, if you have a big numerator in that scenario, but if that numerator is being driven by inventory and AR, you know, you can have a strong current ratio compared to maybe your benchmarking against your competitors. But if you're having, you know, those two areas, you know, that are significantly higher in a lower AP, that can act as a cash vampire until you can get those items collected or that inventory sold. And current ratio defined as current assets divided by current liabilities, right? Yep, exactly, exactly. And so it sounds like what you're saying, which is which is intuitive, is that growth in the current ratio to the extent that one is managing towards it, if not all growth is created equally. If the growth is coming from uncollected receivables or a bunch of inventory that you've bought, you know, that's growth in the current ratio is not necessarily a good thing. Correct. Yeah, correct. You have to look at the components of that. And now if it's if it's all cash and you know no AR and no inventory, then yeah, that's that's not a cash vampire. But if you look at it and it's if you're looking at your current ratio over time and it's it's strengthening, and if it's strengthening due to AR and inventory, then that's a cash vampire in the business. So I wouldn't be surprised if CEOs around the world are paying a lot more attention to cash and liquidity today than they were, you know, let's say six months ago, um, with good reason, as we've discussed. Um, but to get really tactical, um, what should CEOs do to the extent that there are tactical practices or exercises that let's say every small business CEO should actually engage in that would maybe fall under the umbrella of like good corporate hygiene as it relates to liquidity? Like what should CEOs actually be doing when we say, hey, pay more attention to cash and liquidity? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, like for me, you would, you'd want to just like, I, I'm, I would communicate one and just make sure, make sure the key people and key players know the items that are important to the business. So maybe monthly burn rate or specific client information that is, you know, pertinent to units, you know, across the business line. So you, you basically don't want to have, you know, one silo or even just like one person in your business, maybe not just knowing why something might be unique to another, you know, another part of the business. Um, and I think, you know, the other side of like, would be like good corporate hygiene would be like when you're tying goals and performance metrics, like tie them in. So if you have a sales, if you have a sales manager, that's got a growth, you know, you've got to achieve, you know, 5% growth in your sales this year versus last year. Also tie in the collection side of things. So don't just make it a 5% growth, but, you know, maybe it's 5% growth in ensuring that we are collecting all of our, if our terms are net 30 making sure we're collecting on our net 30. So tie it to a growth, but then also tie it to like a collection metric because then you start to engage someone of, okay, I'm hitting my my sales target, but is the business really better off by me hitting my sales target if our collections just keep slipping, slipping, slipping? And if they're managing both growth and the balance sheet, I think you start to have a more holistic picture and people are making decisions with 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 a broader scope in mind. And I would do the same thing on down. I always have that with, you know, your purchasing manager. So managing, 
you know, the purchasing and the, and the purchasing decisions, but then also managing, you know, your days of inventory outstanding. So managing that and making sure you're adhering to what you want um, from a from a sales and operations planning standpoint. That's great. Um, I remember one practice that I engaged in um, was daily um, monitoring of my cash balance. So every morning, the first thing I would do is log on to my online banking platform and look at the cash in and cash out over the past 24 hours. Um, and, you know, this might sound a little bit um, off the fairway, but one of the things that we ended up doing specifically with our finance and accounting group that ended up kind of working is we would turn a goal into a game. So what I mean by that is uh, within our finance and accounting group, you know, I'll just make up numbers here because I don't remember exactly what they were. But let's say that our average days outstanding was 35. Well, we would give them a goal and say, by end of quarter, we want to get this down to 30. And we turned it into kind of a hokey game. We put a big, colorful billboard outside of the CFO's office. We would update it every day. To the extent that it went down, we would do like a big, cheesy celebration. We made it visible. We made it fun. Um, and it it was surprisingly, a very, very simple tool like that was surprisingly effective um, and for anybody listening, there's two great books that, that talk about um, gamifying, for lack of a better way to put it, um, very specific goal like the, goals like this. Uh, the first is called The Four Disciplines of Execution, uh, and the, the second is called The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack. We'll link to both of those in the, in the show notes. But uh, Nick, for whatever it's worth, I had a lot of success doing really, really simple solutions like this and turning it into a bit of a, a game or a competition. And, you know, in my experience, as I'm sure is the case with, with yours, what gets measured tends to get done. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, I, I love how you guys did that with the board outside the CFO's office. I mean, I think tying that in just breeds engagement. And when you have, when you can see something, it, when you see it, it's a little bit more tangible for whatever reason, even if that's just a you know psychological trick or whatever. But if you can see the number on the page, 35, it's a it's a more tangible item. And when you can see that going down and you can see the result and that success and what that does, it's it's something to be rewarded. I think anytime you can just create engagement around what you're trying to do and 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 having people understand the why, I think is really important in giving, if you just are forthcoming with, hey, here's what we're trying to do. Here's the broader picture of this goal. We need to try and increase this collection. I think that's gonna, I think that's gonna set you up for success rather than, you know, maybe keeping people silent or maybe not giving them the why as to, uh, you know, what they're doing for what they're doing. So we're going to bounce around a little bit here and I don't have a great segue, so I'm just not going to even bother attempting to provide one, but I, I want to move on to the concept of employee financial literacy. So we're, we're getting out of liquidity and we're starting to speak a little bit more broadly here. And this is a question, Nick, that I've asked uh, plenty of podcast guests in the past, and I'm very curious to get your take on it, because if you were to survey a hundred randomly selected small business CEOs, you would get a wide range of answers on the following question, which is, in your opinion, how much financial information do you think CEOs should be sharing with their entire employee base and why? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I, I come from the standpoint of, you know, if, if there's something going on in the company, a strategic milestone they're trying to hit or something going on such as a liquidity crunch, I think sharing the information 
you know, sharing what's going on and then also the plan. So, you know, one of my, like one of my, you know, non-negotiable items is if somebody comes to me with a problem, come to me with a solution or an idea of potentially how to fix it. But when it comes to like sharing information with, with teams, I think, I think sharing what's going on, what we're trying to do to either achieve that goal or fix a problem and maybe the path forward um, will help elicit some, uh, some understanding of, you know, what we're trying to do and then get feedback and buy-in from the people that you need, uh, that you need to help you execute. Uh, you know, I was actually just talking to someone recently about just kind of managing AP, you know, the, for uh, one of the people I'm advising that's in a bit of a liquidity crunch. And, you know, I was just talking to them about just basic, you know, are we paying our bills on time? Or are we paying them early? And what's the impact of that? In just that one conversation, you could see the light bulb go on of, oh, wow, if I'm paying this early, this is actually having a negative impact on the company. We shouldn't do that. So I'm of the mindset of sharing what we're doing, why we're doing it, and then getting buy-in from, from the team. And I think that's probably the best way to achieve the goals. Yeah. You know, I tend to be of those 100 randomly selected CEOs, I am probably on one of the far ends of the spectrum around, and, and more specifically, I would, I would advocate for full transparency, um, which is to say, give them everything, every financial statement, every metric, everything unblinded. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if that's the right approach for all companies. I'm sure there are plenty of circumstances where that wouldn't be the case. But just for the sake of the discussion, I'll share my experience. And I'm curious to get your reaction to it. Um, in the first couple of years of running my company, I actually, I did not share all the financial information. In fact, I only shared revenue with people. And the reason why I did that at the time is I was, you know, frankly, just scared. Um, I was worried that Hey, if the employees see, let's say we're too profitable, well, they're all just going to, you know, ask for raises, for example, or they're going to say, well, we should absolutely invest in uh, resource A, B, or C because we can afford it. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, if we weren't profitable enough, then I was scared that, you know, employees would start polishing up their resumes and they would get worried that the company, you know, wouldn't be able to make the next payroll run. For whatever it's worth, I'll just share with everybody listening that none of those things ever happened. None of those, neither of those worries ever manifested in both good and bad periods. Um, I think as the years progressed, my philosophy kind of turned into one that said, if you treat people like adults, they'll tend to act like adults. And if you treat people like children, they'll tend to act like children. Um, and in my experience, A, my employees appreciated the transparency, whether it was good or bad news. Uh, B, I learned that people appreciated being trusted to solve a big problem. So the problem that I thought would prompt each of my employees to polish off their resumes, actually, they viewed as kind of a call to arms saying, hey, it's pretty cool that he trusts us to help solve this problem. And then lastly, you know, I came to learn that if you want your people to help you get to a certain destination, how can they possibly do, do, do that if they don't really know where they are relative yeah. to that destination? So my, my inclination is just rip off the Band-Aid, share absolutely everything. And my guess is almost none of the things that you were worried about will end up happening. Now, again, I don't know if that's appropriate in all circumstances, in all situations. Like, have you ever seen that backfire in your experience? Or, or do you have any pushback against that? Yeah. 
I, I don't, I, I'm with you in that camp. I'm always, a, I'm always, a, you know, a, a more information than less. You know, I, I feel like, I feel in scenarios when it's, you have asymmetric information, you know, it puts people at a, a detriment. And if you need, you need engagement to help achieve your goals. And it's tough to do that when you don't have all the information at hand. Now, you know, there's, it's not like you're going to tell them, it's not like you can share every single literal detail, but, you know, if, if, if we're setting up goals or metrics, you know, I communicate those, or I would communicate those, you know, fully. It, I think the messaging and how it comes across is what, you know, either makes people a little nervous or if it makes people like, you know, okay, let's roll up our sleeves. So, you know, I think it's, I think I would balance how I do the messaging maybe um, would maybe be the only thing I would maybe add to that, but I'm, I'm in your camp. I, I want to give people all the information because, you know, they might know a blind spot that you might not see if someone's down in the details doing something or someone might know something specific to a, a certain customer and they might not feel empowered because they haven't been given all the information to feel empowered to come, you know, to bring the information back up. So I think, I think I would use transparency to build engagement. Um, and that's how I would, you know, that's how I usually would go about it. Now I can, I can, Imagine a situation where somebody listening would say, okay, well, that's great for you guys, but for reasons A, B, and C, I can't or won't do that in my business. So let's assume that somebody listening to this says that they are unwilling or unable to rip the proverbial Band-Aid off and share everything. Okay. If they're not willing or able to share everything, are there any metrics or pieces of data that you think everybody in the company should understand? So asked another way, if we're not going to show them everything, are there a handful of things at the very least that everybody in the company from the receptionist to the CFO should have a really clear understanding of? Yeah, I think, I think everyone should have a clear understanding of the policies. So that way, you know, everyone everyone acts the same. So they, everyone knows what the policy is, you know, I'll, I'll use it. I'll just use like an AP process as an example. If our, if our terms are, you know, net 30, everyone should know our terms are net 30, unless there's some contractual agreement there. But, you know, if, if we, if we know that it, if this policy is what it is, we should be adhering to that. And so from knowing what the metrics are, like, I would say that, you know, base level performance metrics in the business, maybe, sales growth, working capital management, everyone should know those and know, are these either in line with our goals for the year or our policies as a company? And if they're not in those, that empowers someone to say, hey, we always do, we do net 30 and we didn't do that net 30, why? I mean, it empowers it to stop at that certain level. You know, you can start to head stuff off before it becomes too late. So I think knowing, you know, what the, what the overarching goals or what the overarching plan is for those, uh, for the company. So as I mentioned earlier, if it's sales growth, if it's uh, customer growth, product growth, you know, understanding what those are and then understanding the metrics that govern our policies. I think everyone should know those from the CEO down to, you know, the frontline person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've been spending a lot of time discussing, um, sources of cash or generating cash. Let's talk about the opposite side of the coin, which is actually using that cash or spending it. Um, and capital allocation is a subject that I think is discussed in a great degree of detail with much larger companies, specifically publicly traded ones. 
but is something that is, in my opinion, drastically under-discussed and not particularly well understood in small and medium-sized businesses. So once a business has generates cash, naturally they have to decide how to use it or how to allocate it. You know, they could repay debt, they could pay dividends, they could acquire other companies, they could reinvest in any number of uh, areas uh, within their existing operations. Specific to small and medium-sized businesses, Nick, have you seen maybe common mistakes or common oversights or common areas of misunderstanding specific to the discipline of capital allocation? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, kind of two, two come to mind. And I would say the first is, you know, when a cash is generating business or, or we're having good years, uh, there can be a, a, a quickness or maybe a rush to maybe pull cash out of the business. So I'm a small business CEO. I had a great year. I'm going to pay myself a huge dividend or something or pay, you know, me and my three partners a, a huge dividend, you know, this year where maybe that year was a one-off a one-off year because of, you know, some macroeconomic event. So, you know, I think there's a, a mistake that can be made is, you know, pulling cash out of the business without maybe looking forward or maybe understanding maybe why one year was better than the other. I think the other, you know, kind of common mistake can be once you've been generating cash is you start looking at, um, hey, let's reinvest this in the business. I maybe want to build a, a new warehouse or I want to build a new, you know, new line. And there's not, there's not, um, there's not really diligent analysis done around maybe the MPV that those projects will either or will or, or, excuse me the MPV around what those projects will generate and then mm-hmm. say there's three or four projects there's no maybe ranking as to like maybe which one has the highest and best use so yes. sometimes they become like pet projects of hey we had a great year and I really want to just you know I really want my office to be a really you know awesome office so I'm going to reinvest capital in buying expensive furniture for for you know an extreme example. So I think those are, you know, kind of the common mistakes. It's a rush to pull cash out of the business. And then uh, two, it's reinvesting cash back into the business, but not doing the analysis around, you know, which projects might be your, your highest value and your best use of your dollars. Yeah, I totally agree specifically with that second point. I, I found that in my experience, uh, the two biggest like mistakes, if I can use that phrase are um, one, you don't measure the return that you're going to get on any particular use of cash. And two, even if you do measure it, the second order mistake is you don't compare that return to other potential uses of that cash. And you mentioned NPV as one metric. I would agree with that and add to it the concept of a simple IRR, for example, an internal Mm -hmm, rate of return. Um, And in my experience, and my goodness, I fell into this trap, I can't tell you how many times, the biggest area for me that I had trouble with vis-a-vis capital allocation was hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, because in my experience, it's very easy, and I've written about this, it's easy to kind of throw bodies at problems. It's easy for your head of sales, your head of engineering, or your head of marketing to come into your office and say, hey, my team is swamped, we need more bodies. Yeah. And if you're in a highly cash generative period, it's all too easy as a CEO to say, okay, you know, in our budget, you can hire another body. But what I didn't do a good job of is trying to quantify the return that I would get on that hire. So for example, if I'm hiring a software developer, you know, what am I going to get? Are we going to release a new product that we otherwise wouldn't have released? Are we going to release an existing product, I don't know, six months faster than we otherwise would have released it? And if so, 
how much is that worth to the company, right? Let's say we'll get a 10% return on it. Well, that's great. But, you know, if I can get a 15% return by, I don't know, repaying venture debt or paying distributions, yeah. maybe that's a better use of cash. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's, it's the, you know, measurement and once measured, comparing it to other uses of that capital. And I just find hiring was really, really hard to do. I mean, how, how have you dealt with situations, Nick, when, you know, a member of the management team comes to you and says, hey, Nick, I know this isn't in the budget, but team XYZ is just drowning. We need to, we need to throw another body. Like that happens daily to CEOs. I'm sure a lot of people can empathize with that. How have you dealt with situations like that in the past? Yeah, it's, it's a... It's really that that question is a great question because I mean all you have to do is just open up the Wall Street Journal right now and I think you'll find you know a bunch of articles about Google and all these other companies that have for the last two years just been higher 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 and they've either slowed stopped or are laying off you know workers um, you know I for me when I, when I've encountered that when they've said hey we're swamped we need we need help my my usual first question is is why and trying to understand why. Is it process? Is it volume? What is really driving that? So I can understand, you know, what, what is this, what is generating this problem? And then maybe how to attack that solution rather than just throwing bodies at it. Because like you said, in, in cash rich times, it's easy just to say, well, we've got the money, hire a person, hire a person. But then what happens with, you know, the productivity, it's a short-term problem. You know, we, we had a customer buy you know, 50% above what they normally buy. So we're just really busy for a few months. And what happens when we go back to steady state? So I first try and attack it by understanding what's driving the, the problem. And then from there, looking at, you know, if we hire this person, what the steady state is going to be looking like, because it's tough. I've always found it to be a little tough to measure, you know, kind of return, but I've, you know, said, okay, well, once we slow down, what does steady state look like? Is this person going to have 10% or 15% of their time idle now, if we, if we go back to steady state, or are we just on a continual growth path? Are we gonna to need to be adding, you know, 1.5 FTEs every year at this rate? So that's how I've usually approached it as to what's driving the problem. Is it a person that's actually the solution or is it maybe a process change? Yeah. I've looked, I've also looked internally for resources. How could we maybe repurpose someone who's idle? Um, one, of my, one of my clients was kind of going through this where, uh, an accounting an accounting staff needed some help and there was a person there was a person that was kind of doing part of that job that they needed help with originally so it was looking internally can we just repurpose this person so that way maybe they don't have idle time and kind of have them bridge a gap that's usually how I've approached those decisions when um, hiring has been brought up yeah and it's a lot easier to add than it is to take away uh, as all of each of the companies that you described reading about in the wall street journal this morning can attest to um you know in in all of the questions i've been asking you nick there's been kind of an underlying assumption that the companies in questions are net generators of cash which is to say that you know their cash balance is deliberately and purposely increasing over time um but there are plenty of companies who are net um, users of cash, uh, which is to say that they are very purposely decreasing their cash balance over time, presumably investing in some aspect of their business in hopes of a, a future return. Um, companies who have received growth equity are illustrative examples. I mean, the whole point of growth equity is to spend it. Otherwise, why'd you raise it? Um, so 
hypothetically, if you're sitting on the board of a company that is a net user of cash, which is to say, hey, we are burning cash and we're doing so on purpose. I mean, what are the things that you would look at to make you comfortable with that reality? Um, are there you know, unit economics? Are there payback periods? I mean, what are the metrics you look at that would get you comfortable in a situation like that? Because I know a lot of folks listening to this are running businesses that, that fit that description. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a great, <laughs> great question. Yeah, for like for, for rapidly growing businesses, I mean, the, the items that I would look at there would be, you mentioned this earlier, but unit economics, I'd be looking at break-even points saying, you know, are we at least positive on some of our, you know, we're growing here, but what is, what is changing in our unit economics and how are those holding up to our assumptions and projections as we're, um, as we're adding this growth? Because, you know, production costs are not linear to a point. I mean, there is the marginal, the marginal rate here where it does start to change. I mean, it's linear to a point, but you know, you start adding lines, you're going to have these jumps or you're going to have changes. So for me, I'd be looking a lot, really focusing on unit economics and making sure those are staying intact. And then, you know, if we're acquiring customers, I'd be looking at, well, what are we paying to acquire those customers versus what they're generating? Because if that ratio, depending on the, the balance of that ratio, if, if they're generating more than it's costing us to acquire, you know, that's the area you want to be in as you're growing. If you're paying more than what they're generating, that's not a sustainable path. And you can keep throwing cash at that, but eventually you're just going to run out of cash at that point. And so for me, I would look at, I would look for signs that, you know, we're at least positive on our unit economics, positive on what it's taking to acquire, acquire customers and use that as my measure at each stage in the business. You know, at a more uh, kind of extreme part of the example, I think of like venture funded companies. Now, you know, that doesn't, you know, frankly represent a huge percentage of our audience, but um, to the extent that it does, and, and I'm, I'm the furthest thing away from a venture investor, but friends and colleagues of mine who are, you know, naturally look at burn rates and basically say, well, at your current burn rate, how many months of cash do you have in the bank before you have to kind of go back to the market and raise? And we're coming out of a very, very long cycle where, the default assumption with companies is, hey, you know, if we have to go to market every year to raise, then then let's do it um, because yeah, the capital yeah. market supported it. Now, you know, that type of what I'll call capital market risk in businesses is totally different. And friends of mine who are in VC are advising their portfolio companies, hey, you should have upwards of two, maybe even three years of cash um, on your balance sheet now. So decrease your burn rate to ensure that you're kind of default alive for the next three years, which is probably why you're seeing so many layoffs happening in the venture funded world. Um, and for companies who are, you know, burning uh, cash or at least kind of, let's say cash flow break even, um, it's just something that I would encourage folks to take a look at, which is to ensure that, look, there's a, there's a lot of risks in every business, but to the extent that you can, remove what I'll call capital markets risk from your business because it's just impossible to predict. And it, it certainly looks like we're going into a slowdown where you can no longer set your watch to the fact that you can just raise money next year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting time with, you know, what I... I'm not in VC. I can only maybe just speak to kind of my thoughts and <laughs> what I've seen. But yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. The, I think that, you know, venture-backed companies have the ability, you know, if I'm raising 12 months of cash and it takes me, uh, you know, three months to do my raise, you know, so I'm going to start raising in nine months. 
they, they could almost set their watch to it. You know, I'm going to go out, raise money, raise money, and I'll have my next, you know, 12 months, 18 months. And, you know, outside looking in, looking at those environments, you know, seeing that they've been, you know, those venture back companies have basically just been said, you know, how can you increase your burn rate? Maybe, you know, can you reduce costs? Um, and one of the items that I saw was interesting was, you know, one, one uh, venture backed uh, company was told by their partner, you know, maybe you could look at, you know, reducing staff to reduce your burn rate and not just cutting headcount, but just cutting hours. So maybe you're, you know, mm-hmm. four days four days a week versus five. So there's 20%, you know, decrease in your, in your burn rate. So, you know, it's kind of just interesting, you know, levers that you could pull, but yeah, that's, it's, it's fascinating to see what's going on in that market and how those runways now are being extended and how CEOs are having to look at, or founders are having to look at how they can increase that runway. Yeah. And something that a lot of companies, including my own had to do with the early days of COVID-19, I, you know, four days a week, instead of five, that's a 20% reduction to burn rate right there. Uh, salary reductions, which is, you know, of course you have to be very, very careful in pulling that lever, but you know, we, we had to do that. Plenty of other businesses had to do that. So there are levers that you can pull beyond, you know, uh, layoffs, but um, Nick, not to put any pressure on you, but the following question is the question that I was most excited to ask you. So um, if I had a drum roll, maybe I can edit it in, but um, it has to do with budgets. The reason why I want to ask you this question is because that I found as a CEO, we'd spend months producing a budget. And then in any given year, it probably took only a couple of months for things to quickly change. Things happen that were completely unanticipated. And our budget quickly felt like it became meaningless in spite of all the work that we put into it. Yep. (laughs) So... You know, on one hand, you want the discipline that a budget creates, but on the other hand, you kind of need the flexibility that the real world demands. Yeah. So like, can a 12 month budget do that? Is, is it even possible? Um, if so, how? And if not, like, are there other tools, other ways to look at it that can balance, you know, the requirement for both discipline and flexibility that I just found a 12 month budget never provided me with? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a common, common sentiment that I've heard about, you know, we spend all this time to put together this budget and then it's meaningless after February 28th, you know? (laughs) Yep, totally. Uh, Yeah. I, I, I'm with you. I like the I like the the foundation that putting together a budget provides. Um, you know, anytime I'm involved in you know the budgeting process and, and thinking about that, you know, the, the numbers are important. You know, to me, I I've really focused or what I keep on on my mind is the underlying assumptions around maybe sales growth or customer acquisition. Um, the assumptions around maybe working capital management or changes in that, and then the capex plan. Um, are the items that, you know, I kind of keep in the back of my mind. So I, I like the, I like the discipline that the budgeting process creates, but, you know, I also try and be nimble with, with how I go through that process, knowing that it's going to change and probably be obsolete by the end of one queue. Um, so, you know, what, where I've usually focused on is brief forecasting. So, you know, as we, as you hit, so let's just, let's just assume you're a calendar year end company. Um, you've done your budget for coming up starting in January you know, you get into January, you get into February. I, I'm always looking back to actuals versus the assumptions, not real, not necessarily the budget, but I'm looking back to assumptions. So if we've said, we thought, you know, this would be, 
a 5% growth or 10% growth in the first like two months? Did we hit that yes or no and why? And then looking at what the downstream impacts that might be for the rest of the year and then start to build out, you know, reforecasting. And for me, that usually starts around the first quarter, looking at the first two months of the year, first three months of the year, seeing how we've done and then building out, you know, a forecast. And, you know, with, it seems like things are changing so quick, you know, like it's not uncommon to be doing six months for six month forecasts or, or doing maybe even like a six month budget, but I tend to look at reforecasts as being a little more powerful than trying to, you know, recast a whole budget. I look at maybe what's changed and use that as a, as a model to say, okay, this part of what we did do for the budget is still intact. This part has changed. So let's use the part that's still intact. Let's use a, let's use the part that's changed and do a reforecast and then start running that against our base level assumptions. So, you know, maybe our, maybe our sales have slowed. Well, did our collections stay intact? Are we still collecting on the right place? Cause if we're still collecting on the right pace, I know that you know my cash forecast. When I'm doing a cash forecast, that can at least hold. So if my, maybe my sales slowed and maybe my cash collections show slowed, I might need to adjust how maybe how much cash I need to keep in reserve on the balance sheet. So I, I kind of use those items in tandem um, as I think about uh, budgeting and forecasting as we move through the year. And then you know by the time you get to you know September October, you have a pretty good idea of how things are shaking out. So. So one of the things that I toyed with, but I never actually did, was instead of an annual budget, do a six-month budget, or maybe even just do a quarterly budget um, in an attempt to kind of strike that balance between both discipline and flexibility. When you say you're a fan of the reforecasting method, can you just contrast that with, let's say, doing a you know, three or six-month budget? Like, what, what, what is the difference between those two strategies, and why do you prefer the reforecasting method? Um, so I, you know, I, I would prefer like when I, when I think about doing a budget, I think about that completely bottom up every single variable that goes into it. And, you know, with, with reforecasting, maybe you might not have to do that. Now, if, if you have to reforecast everything, you're basically just doing an entirely new budget, but if only certain, you know, maybe levers or certain items are changing with what you had originally budgeted, you can do a reforecast and layer in you know, your budget items and then evaluate to see how maybe gross margins have changed or how maybe you know your EBITDA has changed, you know, kind of looking at looking at metrics to then maybe say, like, okay, we, maybe we do need to do a completely revised bottom-up budget. It's changed that materially that we need to do a revised budget. So, you know, when I think about a budgeting process, to me, that's every single line going through every single piece in the in the financial statements. And you might not have to do that. Now, each it might vary across businesses or, or if there's macro macro factors playing into maybe certain industries. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that you should only do one or the other, but, you know, reforecasting might provide you a little bit more, um, more flexibility in how you look at your numbers and maybe time. But if you're having to rebuild everything every quarter or every six months, uh, if, if the business has changed that much, um, it's probably something you, you're going to have to do just to you know make sure you meet your goals and objectives. Let's let's pivot into um, another set of questions that have less to do with liquidity, but are certainly on the minds of CEOs as it relates to the finance and accounting function. Um, and I'm talking specifically about hiring. Um, it is not abnormal for a smaller, medium-sized business to be 
meaningfully under-resourced in the finance and accounting group. Sometimes it is the founder herself doing the books. Sometimes it is a spouse or a family member. Sometimes it is outsourced to an external party, but in many, many, many instances, it is under-resourced and often underperforming. So for that reason, lots of CEOs have to hire in a finance and accounting leader effectively for the first time. So- Let's, let's presume that you know, we are a CEO and we are in that situation. We're looking to hire in a finance and accounting leader, whether it's a controller or a director, VP of finance, whatever the case may be. Um, maybe just a couple questions, assuming that that's the world we're living in. The first is, in your opinion, what is the difference between, let's say, hiring a CFO versus, let's say, a VP or director of finance? Or, or is there a difference? Yeah, I, so short answer is yes. I think there's a difference, and it really just comes down to you know what that person has done, maybe in their career, who you're who you're bringing into that role. But you know, typically when you think about you know CFO versus the VP or director of finance, the CFO should really be viewed viewed as your strategic partner. So we've got we've got goals of where we want to be. How do we achieve those in an efficient manner? How do we evaluate the capital structure of the business? How do we evaluate the, you know, uh, capital expenditures of the business, you know, to, to meet the growth targets. So really like the CFO is, is really the, I would say the strategy side of thing where, where a VP of finance or director of finance, that's going to be someone who's going to be more day-to-day down in the weeds, so to speak, <clears throat> you know, they're going to be compiling the budgets, compiling the forecast, maybe putting together the underlying data, but more focused on, <clears throat> you know, nuanced details uh, that are needed in order to complete, you know, maybe financial projections or financial analysis uh, that would go into decision making. So that's when, when I, you know, when I think CFO versus like VP finance, director finance, to me, I think strategic you know, forward-looking view versus day-to-day down in the weeds view. You know, I, I had a, a previous director of finance who asked me a similar question. It was in like a career progression meeting. And he kind of asked me to differentiate between his current role, which at the time was a director of finance and his desired role, which has the, at the time was a CFO. And I have no idea if this is a correct or even reasonable explanation, but what happened to come out of my mouth at the time was, you know, I think about a director of finance as a talented accountant who works in a business, but I think about a CFO as a talented business person who happens to be really good at finance and accounting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great, I think that's a great way to sum it up. Great so how does, it. how does somebody know what they need? So again, this is a CEO who's making this hire for the first time. How does she know as a CEO, you know, do I need a controller? Do I need a director of finance? Do I need a VP? Uh, do I need a CFO? Uh, other than the qualitative differentiation that we just provided, are there other things she should look at? So for example, I don't know, revenue thresholds, profitability thresholds, I don't know, employee thresholds. Like how does she know what she actually needs? Yeah, when I, when I think about like building out a, building out a finance function, I, th- I think you need someone, you need to have a strong accounting, one. So you need whoever's doing the day-to-day accounting, you need to have that person there. So when I think about a, a, a structure or an organization, you know, the person doing the numbers needs to know that uh, 
forwards and backwards. So like, I think you need a controller or you need an, you know, an accounting manager, a controller, you know, whatever you want to kind of title them there, but you need your base level accounting to be correct, because if it's not, then it doesn't matter what you're doing from financial projections and what, and go forwards. It's just, it's not going to work. So I think if you, if you're looking at the finance function, it's like, do you have that base need met? And if you do, then, you know, do you have that, do you have that strategic growth partner that you need um, uh, in the business? And if the answer is no, then I would say you, you're going to need to bring in someone who can think strategically. So to me, that is, that is a CFO role at that point, or, you know, even if it's on like a fractional basis, um, you know, cause you're, you can use a controller role to maybe hybrid and putting together some, you know, financial projections or, or, um, you know, some, you know, just financial modeling for maybe projects. I mean, those models aren't that difficult to build, but really if, if you're looking for, you know, a strategic partner, kind of like you said, a business person who's really good at finance, um, that's when I would say, you know, you need to probably bring in a CFO. If you're looking to grow the business, but how to tie in the numbers, that's when you need a CFO. And so even more tactically, when we are hiring whoever this person is, um, whether it be a controller or a CFO or anywhere in between, um, what specifically in your experience should CEOs look for in both the interview process and the resumes? And I guess conversely, are there any maybe red flags that CEOs should be aware of that might be suggestive of potentially making a bad hire? Yeah, I you know what, what anytime I anytime I'm looking to fill a role or or um, uh, you know interview someone, you know the more senior it gets. The more I look for, I look for people who, you know, did something. And what I mean by that is maybe drove change. I saw a problem and here's what I did to fix it. Or I saw an opportunity to um, make this change and help the business grow. So, you know, as the more senior the levels are, those are the types of items that I, that I look for. Because, you know, back to what you said is uh, earlier, I liked how you phrased it with, you know, a good business person who knows, you know, finance um, the more senior that that role needs to be, the more you need them to be able to think strategically. And so when I'm looking at resumes, so if it's a CFO role or, or a VP of finance role, that's what I'm looking for in that candidate is what they've done. And I look for base level experience, base level education, but really what did you do in your roles? Were you just coming in and pulling a lever every day or were you actually thinking and what was challenging? And so usually when I'm talking with them, I'm asking questions you know, what didn't work well and what did you do to fix it? How did you lead through, you know, was that, what, what adversity did you face? How did you navigate that? Because, you know, if everything was just, you know, cherry and gumdrops, then, you know, it's, it's not, you need some type of adversity to understand, to understand, you know, how to, how to manage through tough situations. So I'm looking for someone who's, who's done, you know, difficult, you know, either hiring or making product decisions or, uh, uh, you know, looking for, for growth opportunities or business acquisitions, just I'm looking for someone who's, who's had to think outside the box and, and had to operate maybe in an ambiguous situation. So the more senior it is, that's, that's what I look for. When you talk, when you step down into like maybe technical roles like accounting or, or like a director of finance, for there, I'm looking for specific technical knowledge. So on the controller side, I, you know, I'd ask them about specific accounting standards that relate to your business. You know, if you're a, a SaaS-based business or a subscription business, you know, ask them about the accounting standards for it, 606. You know, how do we, how do we handle our revenue recognition? Uh, 
how do we, you know, how do we handle leasing standards? I mean, that's kind of a big one. And what, what effects maybe do those have on my business if we haven't implemented those and have, have that person kind of talk you through it, what the implications are. Because if they can assess the, you know, assess the technical standards and they can explain to you how this is going to affect maybe your business if you haven't adopted those standards, you know, that's a, that's a good person to have. And if they can't, that's a red flag and probably should avoid them. You know, at the risk of going on a tangent, um, your the answer to the first part of the question, which is you emphasized, hey, what did you actually do in this role, reminds me of, frankly, my biggest pet peeve when it comes to reading resumes. Um, and the pet peeve is the difference between like, what did you do in your job versus what did you accomplish in your job? Way too many times... I mean, frankly, more often than not, when I read resumes, it reads like a job description, right? Yep. It tells me like what you did and like, you know, at the risk of saying it, I don't really care what you did. Uh, that's yep. what you get paid salary for. And that's what any person ought to have done in that role. I'm much more interested in like, what did you accomplish in that yep. role? And so maybe I'll take this perhaps inopportune opportunity to, to air my grievances as it relates to all resumes and suggest to everybody that, if you've got a resume that reads largely in the spirit of what you did, please erase it and please rewrite it in the language of what did you accomplish? Um, because it's then left to the interviewer to kind of tease that stuff out. And gosh, I wish it was just written on a piece of paper in front of me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, I mean, when, when I read resumes like that, that's, you can kind of separate those from like people who have actually done something in their roles or been challenged in their roles versus someone who just came in. I came in, I did the minimum of what was expected to me. It was five o'clock. I walked out the door and I didn't think about it anymore. Yeah, I mean, exactly. that's, that's, that's your, your pet peeve with that is my exact pet peeve. You know? <laughs> I don't, I, I, I will read resumes with a highlighter and I'll maybe just highlight one or two things and just say like, explain more about this if I see accomplishment. And if I just see, you know, I processed this, I did my monthly, I did my CapEx, you know, capital plan where I did my MPVs and then that's it, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just pass. Slash yeah, it's not compelling, passes. right? Yeah. I mean, I could have just read the job description. That, exactly. Uh, I could have read what was asked of you and understood yeah. that you just did that, what was asked of you. So let's my my pet peeve, my very specific pet peeve aside. Uh, let's say that we have hired this person. Um, mm -hmm. How do you know that a newly hired finance or accounting leader, like how do you know they're doing a good job? Um, are there any metrics that you look at? Are there any milestones that should be achieved within a certain period of time? Like how do you inform the question of whether this new hire is actually doing a good job? Yeah, I look at how well they can they can speak about the business. So, you know, if they've, if they've stepped into this company, they're new into the company, you know, do they really understand the nuances of, of what makes it tick? That's what I look for, just number one. So I look at for how they talk about things. And then how, you know, if they're talking about specific items related to the business, I look at how they talk about potential changes and what that would do. You know, if we have these, you know, you know, if someone came to, came to me and said, hey, we have you know, we have 10 customers, but two of those customers represent 80% of our sales. You know, if they come to like, come to me with some like quality analysis about some nuance in the business, that's what I look for. If after a certain period of time, you know, they haven't really brought any type of analysis or added any type of, you know, specific knowledge or maybe stuff they're seeing in the, in the industry or the market, 
that to me is something that might stick out that maybe they're not really taking full command of their responsibilities and what they've been hired in to do. Is it too kind of mechanical and robotic to hold people to quantifiable standards? So two things that just kind of immediately came to mind, I just wrote them down so I didn't forget them. Um, as I was brainstorming, well, what would these metrics actually be? You know, can you hold a newly hired, let's say they've been in the job for three months, for example, like, can you hold them accountable for things like days payable, days receivable? Can you hold them accountable for, hey, you know, we expect the books to be fully closed X weeks after month end? Like, is that, is that too mechanical and robotic? No, it's in terms it's, of holding people accountable. No, it's not. And and those items should be put in place. So if you're if if you're I'll just kind of I'll kind of pick the one. So you mentioned like closing the books. So if you if you've haven't so like let's just assume you know you've got an issue getting financial statements out on time. So you've hired a new CFO, it's overseeing the finance function, said, hey, we need to have the books closed by day five. This is an example. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to say this is now what I'm holding you accountable to. But I think I would follow it up with giving them the mandate and the power to enforce that. So if the, if it's a people process or systems issue, giving them the power to mitigate that so that way they can achieve that goal. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to hold them to whoever you bring into that role, hold them to targets, but then also give them the mandate and the power to achieve that. Because if you don't give them the mandate or the power, they can't achieve that goal. And you've really, you kind of just hamstring that position a little bit, but no, I, I think having quantifiable goals and metrics in place is perfectly reasonable as long as they're coupled with the mandate to, to achieve those goals. Yeah. And I guess the one thing that, that um, you are suggesting, but maybe I'll just state it more explicitly just for the sake of doing so. Um, if you're holding people to numeric or quantitative standards, they should know what the standards are on day one, right? Yeah. So the, the yeah. day that you hire somebody, you got to say, hey, you know, we're expecting you to work towards a monthly close within X weeks, or we mm -hmm. want our payables to, or pardon me, our receivables to decrease by X percent. I mean, you can't have a, uh, a difficult conversation four months into the job and say, hey, we're holding you to all these standards. And hey, by the way, here are all those standards for the first time. Yep. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that should be a day one, a day one conversation. This is what the, this is what clearly what we need, you know, this is clearly what you're being hired for. Now, here's how you can go execute it. And I'm empowering you to go execute it. So please come back to me with what's not allowing you to achieve this goal. Okay, Nick, as we look to wrap up here, um, there's a lot going on from a macro perspective. That's how we started our conversation today. The war in Europe, interest rates, inflation, you know, your dog barking, all these kinds of uncontrollable things. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, no, it's, it's all good. This is, uh, this is live and that's the way it should be. Um, with regards to all of these things that are happening that are outside of the CEO's control, is there anything, tactically speaking, that CEOs should be doing in light of what's happening from a macroeconomic standpoint that we haven't already discussed today? I, I think the the other item we would, you know, or the other item that maybe CEO should should look at is, you know, the inflationary environment right now is just unprecedented. You know, as we discussed earlier, you know, not in 40 years has it been, you know, this high. But I think, you know, one of the items to consider is, 
you know, as the Federal Reserve is, is adjusting to this or as central bankers are adjusting to this inflationary environment, you know, the, there's an interest rate change that is, that is going on. And so I think what CEOs need to look at is maybe how their, their cost of capital or their weighted average cost of capital has, has changed in this, in this inflationary environment. So if the use of, you know, variable rate debt is being used as a component of the company, there's likely that that variable rate debt is being reset on a quarterly basis. Um, so understanding how that, that is changing because if your cost of capital is increasing from a, from a debt and equity perspective, you need to make sure that you're accounting for that when you're looking at maybe capital decisions and, and underwriting to maybe new hurdle rates or higher hurdle rates. So that way, you know, maybe you don't take on a project that is now negative MPV or negative IRR, you know, if, if it's a negative, pro negative project to your, to your company um, under your current cost of capital, whereas, you know, in your previous number, it might've been a, a project that was a go. So I think just understanding how um, the broader interest rate environment has changed and how that affects the cost of capital um, is what I think CEOs should maybe just keep an eye on as they go forward. That's great. Very, very insightful. Um, Nick, you've been very generous with your time. We really appreciate you lending your insights uh, on all things finance and accounting from hiring to working capital and everything in between. Thanks so much for being generous with your time. And we really appreciate you joining the show today. Uh, thanks for having me, Steve. It was, it was great talking with you and uh, I hope it was useful. Mm -hmm.